first time I played this game, so I was walking in pretty blind. I have to admit, if I'm being 100% honest, if you want the, like, the, the five-second summary, I was hoping it was going to be a little bit better than it was. I've heard people praise the hell out of this game for years, and having played through it, I can see why. It's because this game, A, is a quintet game, and all quintet games are unique. They, they do different things, you know? How many other games do you have out there that are side-scrolling SimCity games? Or have something where, uh, God, a, a, an RPG that involves rebuilding towns from an economic perspective and allowing them to build up, where you can actually do side quests and buy a home, you know? That's the kind of thing that we would see in, like, Morrowind or something similar, which wasn't even out yet. This is a 1996 game. So I can see the appeal, and there's certainly some good stuff here. I don't want to sound like there isn't, but I was expecting this to be one of the greats for me, and I don't think it really held up to that. Now, if that invalidates my opinion for you, that is totally acceptable. But I wanted to get that up front so that people who don't want to hear the rest of my thoughts can go ahead and bow out now. As usual, this is not a review. I already did the review. That's the stream. This is just my thoughts, my ruminations, if you will. But I do want to talk about gameplay first, because the first game I was reminded of more than anything else, and I know this is going to sound weird, is Spore. You ever play Spore? You start out with the cell, it's kind of a 2D gameplay thing, and then you kind of go up to being the, the animal stage, and then you have the tribal stage and the city stage, and then everyone quits the game because nobody cares about the civilization stage. <clears throat> but yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of, of Spore in the fact that Okay, so first we run around setting up these towers to restore the land. Then we're going to go ahead and run around and restore the plants first. Then we're going to help the birds. Then we're going to help the animals. Then we're going to help the people. And there's just this nice logical progression as we're going through. And most of the gameplay didn't vary like it did in Spore. But there was just this very vibe of that. Especially since the story is such a relative absence for, I'd say, the first half of the game. Which is fine, of course, because it was establishing. It made for what felt like two completely disconnected stories that were happening alongside each other. In fact, honestly, I get the vibe that was the intent, but I'll get more to that when we talk about the story section. I admit I don't know why this wasn't exported here to the States. I, I do own a copy of this game, just to put it on record here. There it is. I don't know if you can see that accurately. I'll kind of hold it up. The focus might not grab it. But yeah, I do own a copy of this game. It was not the cheapest thing in the world to grab, but that's okay. <sighs> I don't know why we didn't get the export. It was translated into English, right? You know, and it was, it was English, French, German, Italian, something like that. So it's not like they didn't already do the work. I guess they didn't want to bother. It is worth noting that the timing is interesting. I mentioned 96. It's actually late 96. This game uh, came out after Mario Kart 64 and just a few months before FF7. And we all know how much of FF7 was a sea change for the RPG industry in general. And whether you like FF7 or not, the impact it had on the industry from a marketing and business perspective is undeniable. So it's possible they just looked at this and said, nah, and just didn't even bother. I don't know. I'm glad we got this outside of Japan at all, unlike several other uh, RPGs of this era, especially the SNES era, which I can mention, which I haven't even played because there is no official release for them. The music is a weird thing to comment on. I want to jump into that next, because the music and the graphics both felt like a yo-yo to me. At some points, there's just this really excellent, atmospheric, wonderful music that perfectly adds to the scene, or is just really, you know, it's bopping, right? It's just going, yeah, da, 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 going through Africa. And the same thing was true with the graphics. Some of the, the doodad placement and the general texture design, I guess brickwork design, was awesome. 
Uh, spoilers, as always, uh, because this is a rumination, but the last dungeon, the airship area, was really, really detailed and looked beautiful. Just absolutely brilliant stuff. Then you get, like, the cave, the generic caves, and the huge stretches of dungeon, which are so plain that they look like they're straight out of RPG Maker. And, consequently, most of those long, boring stretches of dungeon also tended to have really long boring stretches of music. Uh, they have the low repetition problem where a song ha is only like 20 seconds long, so you just hear the same bit over and over. 20 seconds is an exaggeration, but it's it's actually closer to 40. That's a more accurate n number. It's the same problem Breath of Fire 2 had. There's plenty of good songs there in Breath of Fire 2, but they loop too much. Well, here, they're not good songs, and they loop too much, so it just kind of made me go, ugh, for several of these sections, and it grated on my patience. This also ran into the other problem. I would say there's two really big issues with this game that really dragged its score down for me on the gameplay axis. Walk Through-itis and Grind Walls. This game is... My, this might actually be one of the worst walkthrough-itis games I have ever seen. Ignoring the fact that there's nothing to indicate where you need to go at certain points of the game, other than generally vague directions, even if you talk to people in, in towns and whatnot, even if you talk to all the NPCs, there's nothing to indicate which NPCs say anything different, there's nothing to say which NPCs you need to interact with, and there's quite a few across quite a few towns, across a fairly large map that is long and arduous to cross. There's no quest log of any fort sort sort or form, not even the bravely default thing where you just pop into the menu and someone's like, hey, maybe you should go this way. But then they started doing other things as well. Like there's some places where you can interact with something and nothing really seems to indicate you can. Or, and this is the worst part by far, I can't believe this, there's parts on the overworld map you can enter where there's no tile there to indicate that that's a spot you can enter. That I ran into that one several times. I'm not talking about the secret areas. That's fine. You want to have a secret area that you, you know, it's just a random spot on the overworld map, go for it. I'm talking plot-critical stuff that you actually had to enter in order to progress. Then there's the grind wall. Anybody who watched the stream knows that I was going out of my way to not avoid encounters for the whole game. And I was mostly okay until I ran into my first grind wall, where I was like, okay, well, I'll just stop and level. So I stopped and leveled. And then I went on, it was fine. And then I ran into my second grind wall, and I stopped and leveled, and then I was fine for a bit. Then I ran into my third grind wall. There I found out that I was about five to seven, depending on how you define it, levels lower than what I should be at that point. Now, that's going off of walkthroughs and stuff. But they all seem to agree about that, and given the amount of damage I was doing, that is, that is fair. I was way under-leveled, having stopped to grind twice while not avoiding encounters. That's pretty bad. And that's not the last grind wall I ran into. Not really great experience curve design, which is a damn shame. Because the leveling, that is to say, the power progression curve is actually great. What they do is each level is pretty significant. Even a single level up is a fairly large boost in power. There's one time uh, where I was fighting these enemies, and they were hitting me for something around the range of 15. And I was hitting them for 1. I leveled up once, and they started hitting me for six, and I started hitting them for about ten or so. That's how much of a gap that meant. I'm pretty sure that's because they do tink armor design, which to describe briefly. Uh, not a lot of games do this. There's a few that do it. It's when an enemy has an armor stat, and if your damage, let's say this is ten, right? So here's zero, here's ten. If your damage is anywhere between one to nine, you just go plunk, and you just do one or zero damage, or very, very little, like two on a crit, that kind of a thing. Then, the moment you do 
10 or more damage, depending on how they calculate. So let's say we go up to 11 damage mark. All of a sudden, you start doing 11 damage to it because the damage you're doing overwhelms their armor. It's a different approach as opposed to armor reducing the amount of damage they take. It's kind of more armor preventing the damage they take. And then once you can bypass the armor, you got it. It's kind of like AC in D&D, but not quite. Similar concept. I've seen a few RPGs do that, and I'm pretty sure this one does that, because I encounter that a lot, where I'd be doing 1, 1, 1, 1, and then, you know, I get a weapon upgrade or I get a level up, and then all of a sudden I just start doing 15 or 20 damage to a strike, right? Pretty common thing. So the leveling, the power progression curve is actually fine. And the difficulty curve is overall pretty good too. Other than, I'd say, one singular fight in the entire game, I never ran into any difficulty cliffs or any spikes in anything. It was just a nice, smooth progression. The only problem was that experience curve, which was not well designed in order to keep accommodated. To further emphasize this, I hate to keep bashing this point, but just one last point here, then I'll move on. One of my viewers came, said, Leander, was like, hey, you should go ahead and kill everything even when you're backtracking, just to make sure you're getting all the ex-possibles. Like, okay, so we'll start doing the Leander protocols, and we started killing everything every time we went through every room. We were still substantially underleveled. Anywho, <clears throat> those complaints aside, I should probably talk about some of the things the game does well from a gameplay perspective thing. Uh, ironically, the moment that sticks out most in my head is the moment I just played like an hour ago, which is the last dungeon. I'll save that for a second. I love the economic side quest thing I mentioned earlier. I wish there was some kind of guide for it. Uh, not a guide, that's the wrong word. I wish... I don't know, I, I wish it would have been a little bit more precisely designed because it can kind of run over itself. And there's some cases where it really isn't clear what you're supposed to do. Walk through it is. But it was still very cool and very fun to, to bounce between the three major towns, actually four major towns, and, and develop them and do the little side quests and get the pictures and, and run around and get the meat in order to take to this guy and then sell the wine to this person and sell the fashion to this person. And just as you're doing so, helping to develop civilization is effectively what you're doing. I mean, we help the people switch from monarchy to republic and then we help rebuild Chicago. I mean, excuse me, totally not Chicago. It's cool stuff. It's cool stuff, and it was enjoyable to run around doing. The the way that they approached the enemy encounters was pretty good, too. Obviously, you shouldn't, because I just complained about. But it's actually completely possible to just totally avoid enemy encounters and just run through dungeons. I have no idea how you'd manage the bosses if you do that. In fact, one of these days I hope to look up a speedrun of this game to figure out what the heck they were doing on this one. But nevertheless, it is an option, and so you know, encounters are optional, as they should be. So that's awesome. Um... Uh, hang on. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to check my notes here really quick because I have, I have a few scattered thoughts here. Because I feel like I'm... A, oh, yes, I knew. There was one other thing. The animations. The animations are great. The animations, I, I've seen better, but not many. This is, this is good. And there's a lot of uh, frames of animation for most of the actions you can take and jumping into the box and eating the food. It, it goes back to that whole unique thing. It certainly added to the visual appeal of the game. Which is good, because even though I've complained about some of the long, boring dungeons, there's actually some really good dungeons in this one, too. Several ones where it's basically Zelda-style. You know, knock out this pillar to send the water down here so you can swim up here kind of a thing. I'm sure there's a proper term for that. I've always mentally thought of that as Zelda puzzles. Because there's puzzles where it's like, here's a row of X's and here's a row of Y's need to make sure the X's and Y's co coincide. X's can only be flipped next to a Y, but a Y's can only be flipped if they're next to two X's. Solve. That's a puzzle, right? That's a classic, traditional, standard, whatever you want to call it, puzzle. A Zelda puzzle is, well, I just described one, didn't I? 
knock out the pillar, send the water down, swim to the target. Now that the water level has raised, so you can progress. That's a Zelda puzzle, and I love Zelda puzzle designs. One of the things I love about playing the Legend of Zelda series. There's a lot of that in this one. Not every dungeon. There are some boring dungeons, but there's a lot of that, and it really helped to keep the gameplay interesting as I was going through them. The combat wasn't great, but I can't call it any kind of bad either. The combat boils down to uh, you can attack, you can multi-attack, you can jump attack, you can dash attack, you can jump dash attack. That's what it boils down to. But it's surprisingly fun to run through an area, jump up while sprinting, attack in the air, coming slashing down, do another dashing attack, and then just keep running. Like, there's a fluidity to it, which kind of goes along with what I mentioned earlier with the Zelda puzzles. So, combat was still enjoyable. The thing I really want to praise is the bosses, or rather... Several of the bosses. Not all of them, but most of the bosses were very unique. Again, very Zelda. Each of them had their own gimmicks, their own ideas, their own weak points, their own things you had to do to go through them. It was Zelda boss design. And I loved it. And I really enjoyed most of it, which, which made the last boss even more egregious. Uh, before I talk about the last boss... Ah, no, nah, we'll screw it. We'll talk about the last boss, because the last boss sucked. It's like, okay... The last boss... First of all, the song wasn't great, but that's, that's something I could at least ignore. I mean, I've played Robotrack. Right? No, nobody out there's played Robotrack. The last boss is a static guy, and you have a very small area to move in. There's the boss. He announces his attack, and then you do something to dodge the attack. And then he announces an attack where you can hit him, and then you hit him. And then you hit him at the very last moment when his head is going back to his body. He has... It's random. It has huge invulnerability phases where you cannot do anything to the boss whatsoever except for dodge attacks. It's really easy, which is a shame because the difficulty was actually pretty appropriate for most of the other fights. And it's boring. Nothing that any boss should be, never mind the last boss. The second phase was slightly more engaging, but ultimately still just kind of eh. So really huge letdown, especially since most of the other boss fights were actually quite fun. This is even more of a letdown, natural segue, because the final dungeon was awesome. Probably my favorite dungeon of the whole game. All the characters you met up until that point in time, well, all the major characters uh, that you met up until that point in time, they all help you out. They all take a part of the final dungeon. You know, I'm going to help hit this thing, and I'm going to use my illusion spells to get rid of the, the, the camera, and I'm going to make it so that this, this heat laser is gone. And you're still going through the dungeon, but they're progressing with you and helping you as you go. It's hard to overestimate. Hmm. Underestimate? I don't want to overstate, but it was a very in, in adding to good kind of thing. Me English go well go. <laughs> it was a very good thing, and it added to the enjoyment of the final dungeon substantially. The, the enemy encounters were good, the music was good, even though it was a repeat, so that sucks. Um... The visuals were nice. As I mentioned, the visuals for the airship area were fantastic. You also had a decisive objective to do. Go through and plant bombs throughout the thing. You don't even fight Dr. Baruga. He ends up dying to his own stupidity because he's a moron. <laughs> Which I suppose is appropriate for the smartest human being on the, on the earth. Anyways, <clears throat> that's about all I got from the gameplay axis. Which I suppose leads me to the story. Where do I begin with the story? Um, The characters, as I mentioned, they're... They grow on me. I don't think any of them individually would be excellent. But nevertheless, the supporting cast was good. And I did care when Fida and Royd ended up, well, you know, dying horribly in order to save me. That that did actually bother me. 
And I, I have to admit, during the ending, I was a little bit pissed about what goes on there. I mean, come on. Okay, congratulations, Dark Side Arc. You have successfully saved the world. Good job. Um, so now you get to go die. And Light Side Arc go gets to be with Light Side Ellie for the rest of their lives. And they get to have a happy ever after. So you're happy about that, right? Stab! Okay, I'm slightly exaggerating, but only slightly. Just, I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what they were thinking. Either way, the story itself, let's talk about the story proper. And then I want to talk about some concepts it, it evoked within me. So forgive me for my weird structure here. The story itself basically doesn't exist until you meet Baruga. Oh, there's little tidbits there. Um, you get the fact that the king was after the town for some reason. We found out that Mr. Wong hired the king. We found out that Wong works for Baruga. And we just kind of follow the trail back until we go meet Baruga. And that's when the plot effectively starts. Well over two-thirds of the way through the game. But that worked because the intro, like, like I said, it felt like a separate story. But it was all premise. Okay, the world doesn't exist. Go bring it back to existence. Go resurrect the world. Okay, I'm actually with that. And... While there's not anything specifically fantastic about it, the tone and theme were still enjoyable. I wish we could have still talked to animals by the end of the game. In fact, I'm not sure why they took that away from us, but whatever. Either way, I don't have much to say about the intro part. Once Baruga comes in, I get the very... So they mentioned that Baruga is from the previous cycle. And I'll have some thoughts about that in a minute. I do like how... Dark Gaia has already laid the seeds in advance. Dark Gaia has, has been moving while you while you were asleep for three years. Dark Gaia has been moving behind the scenes and like, okay, I need to make sure that this guy gets super, super wealthy to the point where he can actually command and control others. Then he needs to send other people out in order to go find this thing. And we need to find this one spot so we can make sure that the, the light side Gaia, you know, Gaia cannot interfere at all. And that's just the whole plan that's been going on behind the scenes. And of course... The whole time, Dark Guy is trying to make sure that you, the main character, go and make sure everyone gets fully developed in advance so that when you, you can actually reach Dr. Baruga's laboratory from the previous cycle and then resurrect Baruga. Once Baruga's up, your job's effectively over. And you'll notice you're actually supposed to die at that point from Dark Guy's perspective. This is, like I said, when the plot actually starts because now it's about you trying to... I mean, this is a Chrono Cross situation, right? We're, we're trying to figure out how to fix the mess we've made of things. This leads to uh, some interesting things. By the way, I love the fact that Dr. Baruga's main main capital city place was called Mosque. Almost exactly where Moscow would be. Ahem. And his, his, uh, his, his tower was in eastern Mongolia, while we're on the subject. I don't even know what they're going with on that one. The geography in this game is not, not the most accurate in the world, since... France is is a, is a town and a castle, and Spain is a town and a port. But anyways, and Britain is one guy. It's okay. The British guy, this is this is hysterical. It's actually Scottish. It's at the very north end of the British Isles. The richest man in the world is Scottish. If that doesn't make sense to you, dun-dun, woo. Anyways, <clears throat> we end up uh, finding out, you know, that we've been a pawn, and we go and fight him. And honestly, I don't, I don't think to say about the plot. Let's move on to my actual thoughts, okay? So, I do personally consider this part of the quadrology. Actraiser, Soul Blazer, uh, Illusion of Gaia, Terranigma. I think this fits pretty smoothly in. Let's talk about a few ideas there. I, I kept mentioning the Baruga thing. I was debating where this would sit in the quadrology for me, because I could see this being a prologue. You know, we set up the world, and then the world will be smashed kind of a thing. And I could see it as an epilogue. 
because now we have successfully stopped the cycle. Or have we? This leads me to my first question for you guys, for those of you aware of Terranigma and the, the quadrology in general. Do you think that Terranigma is the end of the cycles, or is it merely another of the cycles? Now, it is. the game does flat out say that Dark Gaia goes back to sleep, so it's entirely possible that this is simply another cycle. But the game did not exactly have a good translation in English, and there were a lot of lines that were just wrong, so maybe that actually does mean death? It is also entirely possible that this is supposed to be cycles, and that's just kind of horrible. I'm going to go ahead and say my opinion, which I feel like I've already given. I think that it was the end. I think that this was the termination of the cycles that have been happening since Act Razor. My opinion. See, uh, let's talk about Baruga really quick. Baruga, the way this lines up for me, is in Act Razor, Gaia shows up and is like, hey, and you play as Gaia. Get, hear me out. Just bear with me for a second. You play as Gaia. You run around, you build up civilization, build up civilization to the point where they basically forget about you. That's cool. That leads to Soul Blazer. Soul Blazer is when Dark Gaia really shows up and actually starts being a relevant force. I know I'm skipping Actraiser on 2 on purpose. That's because Actraiser 2 effectively has no story and might as well not be connected to anything. And it's also not that great of a game. Soul Blazer, Dark Gaia shows up and we, we see a few signs of things like the Phoenix Power and the weapon whose name I can't remember right now. Please forgive me. I meant to look it up, but I couldn't remember. I talked about it in the Illusion of Gaia rumination. I talked about the connection there. Illusion of Gaia is then Dark Gaia having successfully subverted one of the cycles, right? Having corrupted everything by use of the meteor, which is distorting and twisting time and space. By the way, huge spoilers for Illusion of Gaia. Sorry, I'm spoiling all of these, obviously, because the only way I can discuss this. When Dark Gaia is removed from the equation, that cycle actually temporarily reverts back to where it should have been. Should have been, a.k.a. a normal modern-day Tokyo thing. That, that was the whole idea in Illusion of Gaia. So that happens. And then, bear with me, in that modern society, a man is born named Baruga. Baruga, I don't know how long. It could be years, it could be centuries for all I know, given how, long, how slow technological progression could be. But Baruga is born. He becomes very smart. He invents all of this new technology, this brilliant stuff. And he's thinking about the, the escalation of man. And either his actions directly or his actions indirectly bring back Dark Gaia. So Dark Gaia is like, hmm, I'm going to use you. And Dark Gaia sells Baruga on Dark Gaia's idea. This is mentioned in this game directly, but it's also pre present in just about each of these games. The idea that Dark Gaia isn't so much, I want to destroy everything, as I want to pick and choose what gets to survive and everything else gets to go away. This kind of leads to the thematic differences between Gaia and Dark Gaia. Dark Gaia wants to rule. Gaia wants to help. Gaia wants to be an assistant and allow people to kind of live and be and do their own thing. Dark Gaia wants to be the absolute tyrannical leader, the dictator, I guess t t tyrant, the tyrant, and say, okay, you get to be, and you get to be, and you get to be, and the rest of you gets smashed away. This is how things are going to be. This is my way of doing things, right? This is the approach between both of these throughout the course of all four of these games, to some extent or another. So Dark Gaia looks at Baruga, and his humanist ideals and his massive elitism leads him to be a perfect pawn. Unfortunately, things start to go south, and the cycle starts to end. I don't know how or why, but we do know about the Asmodeus thing. I don't know if Dark Gaia invented Asmodeus. I don't know if Baruga invented it. I don't know if it was a natural occurrence. It's, it's, it, there's a lot of possibilities here. One way or another, Asmodeus happened, and Bur uh, Baruga had to go ahead and seal himself away. Having done so, he then 
survives as time passes on and the continents get sealed away and then unsealed and then this game happens and now he is here from the previous cycle with all of the massively advanced technology and advantages from the previous cycle he doesn't have to start over dark gaia has in effect granted himself or itself it doesn't matter i'm going to say that he, he in both cases uh, dark gaia has granted himself a a powerful pawn that he can now use to get an advantage on the board that's my theory about baruga and I'm going to segue that into my next theory. These games feel like being ants watching elephants fight, for the most part. There's one exception to that, which I'll get to in a minute. Because the, the very strong vibe I get from all of these games, having played all of them now, this is the last one, is that Gaia and Dark Gaia are playing. They're playing chess, put simply. This is just a, a contest between the two. You could call it an ideological contest or a philosophical contest, but either way, there are clearly rules that both tend to follow, and there's things that they both have to do in order to be able to keep playing the game. They both also, each cycle that I keep referring to, is effectively just another match. It's like, okay, well, hang on, you won this time, okay. Reset the board, reset the board, and now let's go ahead and play again. This is another reason why the question of is this a new cycle or is this the last cycle is so relevant and why I'm so curious of your thoughts on that. Either way, um, like I said, most of these games feel like you are one of the ants. And, and I don't mean this as an insulting way. Like, Illusion of Guy is probably the most clear cut of this one. It feels like you are an insignificant speck who happens to be maneuvering through substantially larger events, way beyond your ken. Even when you play the hero, you are nothing more than one of the pawns. Now, this game could be argued to go against that, but I don't agree with it. The only game I feel that violates that is actually ActRaiser, the original. When you play as Gaia. When you are playing as the elephant. See, each of the ones, let's say, first off, you start off in ActRaiser, you're playing God, Gaia. In Soul Blazer, you play the hero. In Illusion of Gaia, you play a, a normal person. You notice we just kind of are doing this as we go. You're just a normal kid who happens to have a little bit of psychic power, and that's kind of it, right? Now, the the progression here, you're probably thinking, well, how does Terranigma fit into this? This is the only piece of evidence I have for why I think Terranigma is the end of the cycles. Gaia, hero of Gaia, normal kid chosen by Gaia, new Gaia. I think the idea here is that Ark, who are we playing, yeah, by the way, Ark, haha, uh, who are we are playing as in this game is supposed to replace Gaia, supposed to be a new Gaia. And Gaia's going ahead and walking away from the board. So they ha had to win one last match. Now we're going to go play something else. And they go off to the Glandstream series or something like that, which is what Robotrek is apparently a part of. I didn't even know that one. Go figure. So that makes sense to me. I am, as always, curious of your thoughts on that concept. Um, the the last thing I have to talk about, I guess this is it. This is my big point, was the cycles and, and the theory I had about that. I also have this really strong theory that Dark Gaia is a bit of a spoil sport. I have a note in here that says Dark Gaia knocking over the sandcastle. Because there's this vibe in several of these games, especially ActRaiser, that Gaia will build or make or do or whatever. And then Dark Gaia will be like, no, it should be like this. And that goes back to that tyrant thing. This could also be a nature versus anti-nature kind of a thing, if you want to take that. I, I, don't, I don't want to look in that direction personally, but I can see how you can take it that way. But, you know, the, the sandcastle. No, the sandcastle should be like this and this and this, and this is how it should be, and I am right and you are wrong. You get the idea. That certainly is very prevalent in this game specifically, since uh, at just about every point in time, Dark Gaia mentions the fact that this is, like, like I'm right, and D Gaia is wrong, and I need to prove that Gaia is wrong. Come on! 
You don't understand. Like, that's, that's just ugly. Why are there no parapets here? Let me build some parapets here. That's the vibe I got from this one. I would comment about the characters, but there's not much there to comment on. I did think it was funny how one of uh, Malin was like, Hey, I love you. You don't love me? I'm evil now. Wait, I've been redeemed, and now I'm going to help you for the rest of the game. And that was her character arc. Now, that sounds like I'm exaggerating, but each scene she was in followed that progression that I just said. So, if you were to string her scenes next to each other, that's exactly how it would go, with no no time spent on any given point. I feel like maybe they shouldn't have had... I know this sounds like a weird thing because I liked the premise of rebuilding the world, but I feel like they should have either focused on rebuilding the world and just gone full spore with it, or started the game like right before the Baruga thing and then fleshed out the characters a little bit more and developed the... Or maybe just... No, 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 not the Baruga thing. Start the game at the point where humans are resurrected and then flesh out the characters and flesh out the locales and a little bit more on the story focus. I think either of those might have worked a little bit better, but I do applaud them for trying something different, as I always do when it comes to Quintet. It's a shame we haven't seen anything from them in however long. It's either 11 years or closer to 18, depending on how you define that. Hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I am looking forward to some of your comments on this one. I will see you next time.